Uh, Steve is someone who I have um, followed the work of quite closely for a number of years and um, probably only more recently kind of connected um, with him um, a little more personally. So we, we don't know each other very well, but we have had a few chances to interact and I'm really excited about um, you know, diving into a conversation today. So thanks for joining us, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, it's really hard to know where to start with you, brother. I mean, there's just so much to you. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of quivers there <laughs> that, you're, that, you, that you're holding. And um, I guess, you know, for me, I was kind of intrigued kind of overall about, about, um, about your work. Um, obviously, it seems to me um, you work one-on-one with, with um, all kinds of people around the world from kind of actors and musicians through to kind of senior executives and then obviously in your, in your group workshops and things. But it seems to me you're coming at it from, from, from the body point of view, from the mind point of view, um, and probably, I guess, also kind of helping people with, I don't know, I guess, uh, navigating their, their experiences in life. Would that be a way of putting it? Yep. Yeah. Mm, so maybe kind of, can, can I leave it to you to kind of frame up what it is you do? Sure. Um, yeah, it, I, as you said, it's, it's a lot of quivering going on. A lot of quivers. <laughs> Arrows in the quiver. Yeah. Um, I mean, strictly speaking, we, you know, I, t- I work one-on-one with people and I work in workshop contexts as well. Um, and I, you know, it's sort of the intersection between um, high performance, uh, relationships, sexuality, things of that nature, meditation, um, the body, and all these sorts of embodiment, I suppose you could say, all those sorts of things. And at the moment, I'm off, very often uh, collaborating and teaching with Michaela Bowen. And she's a very well-regarded relationship uh, therapist and counselor of 30-plus years' experience. And so, you know, we have quite an interesting breadth of, and she's, a, you know, she founded a rehab <laughs> so, you know, in Malibu in her time. I mean, she, you know, I'm, if I go into her bio, we'll be here a long time. She's just very experienced. And so we have quite an interesting mix that we, we bring together. And, you know, I, I'm interested in a lot of things. So I, from a marketing point of view, um, brand point of view, um, it's not, uh, you know, it's a bit of a brand person's nightmare, I think, because I like to, I like to interview interesting people on my podcast and they, and depending on what I'm interested in and who I'm interested in, the people could be really rather different. So we might have some person who spent 30 years in Dharam Sala as a translator of Tibet, ancient Tibetan texts one day. And then we have somebody who works with, uh, veterans, PTSD the next day. Um, and so on. And there's really quite a, a wide range. Uh, so I think that's what characterizes my output really is sort of following my interest in that sense, um, you know, putting things out there, doing things of that nature. My, but my private client work is, is more narrowly, uh, narrowly related to, as you say, intersection of, of, you know, high performance relationships, the body, the mind, things like that. Mm. So I know it's a, it's a big question, but how do you see that interrelationship? Um, like obviously embodiment and all those things people are working a lot in that space at the moment, but what's kind of the Steve James kind of, kind of bent on, on, on the way all that comes together. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, uh, as you, you know, as we were saying before we started recording, you know, I do, I do have a bit of a different way of looking at some of those topics. 
Um, I mean, where, where do you want me to start? I could start with embodiment, I suppose. Mm. That be, yeah. I mean, embodiment's one of those words that is, is, it can be correctly used in many different ways. There are lots of words like that. So for instance, you know, right now my laptop here is on the table. Um, you know, I could put my laptop on the table or I can table a motion at a meeting. They're the same word, but they're used in very different ways. And uh, they're perfectly valid different ways that the word can be used and embodiment is the same. And I always like to really ponder definitions uh, and what do we mean when we say things, especially when it's a buzzword or it's a lingo word or, a, you know, a words of the trade kind of thing. And for me, embodiment means very, very specifically um, uh, intimacy with the sensations of the body or feeling the sensations that the body's generating. That's what it means for me um, when I use the word. Now, to be specific, um, if, you're, if you were to, you know, right now feel your own body and there's two things happening. There's, in a certain sense, raw data flowing in that reveals the presence of the body. So maybe you can feel your bottom on the chair or the clothing on your skin. And then there's the mind labeling and categorizing saying that's the bottom on the chair that's the clothing on my skin and tuning into that raw sensory data before it becomes labeled and categorized by the mind um, is you could say a good example for me that highlights what i'm talking about when i talk about embodiment uh, you know if you had no memory of your body we always assume we have a body because usually we assume that because it was there the last time we checked and we have a sense of our body that's not only informed by and created by what we can feel right now, but also by our previous experience of having had a body and our expectations of having a body in the future. And uh, so sometimes I ask people to imagine they had no memory of their body, no model or concept of their body, and what can they actually feel? That's what I'm talking about when I say feeling the sensations that the body is generating. So it's not attempting to get into a certain kind of state, um, a positive state, say aiming for a positive state or a state of integration or a, a sense of wholeness. Wh why not? <laughs> well, <laughs> because when you feel what's there to be felt, that initial contact step with the sensations that the body are generating, there's no telling what you're going to feel. Sometimes I say there's no informed consent on intimacy. You don't know what you're going to feel until you feel it. Mm. And so you don't know how your body's going to feel. So if you feel your body as a very narrow example, it might feel you know good. It might feel bad. It might be pain. There might be a peaceful, pleasurable feeling. There could be all sorts of feelings. And so anxiety or you know joyous feeling, anything. So sometimes we confuse the contact step with the response step, if you like. And so your embodiment to me is the capacity to feel what. Uh, the sensations that the body is generating. What you then do with those sensations is a discrete second step. Um, and I'd like to make that distinction. Uh, very often, if we collapse the contact step and the response step together, then we end up rejecting what we're feeling in favor of a state that we call embodiment. So you feel disintegrated and out of sorts or maybe numb. So that's, in a certain sense, we don't even really notice that or even feel that. Because straight away, we've collapsed the two steps, and now we're off into 
gaining integration and, and sensitizing and gaining kind of sense of wholeness. So I like to make that distinction. I'm not against optimizing conditions and making oneself feel good or trying to feel better or trying to feel whole and integrated. I think those are excellent. In fact, I think in a certain sense, they're inevitable. The momentum of the organism is to optimize its conditions, you know, depending on its own pleasure pain calculation. You know, we're not always so informed there, but we always are basically trying to do what's good for us, what we think is good for us. Mm. So I'm not against that at all, but there's a step that right before the response, which is the contact step. Um, I could talk about embodiment for much longer, but th there's a bit of a sense. No, absolutely. I think that's, that's amazing. Like just, just that brief little piece that you put out there, I think it's going to be extraordinarily, um, extraordinarily helpful for people listening. But uh, it's interesting, I, I note around you sort of saying you optimize the environment for what you think is good for you. And I guess um, based on the stories that you tell yourself, based on the other two parts that we talked about, the mind and the experience, that potentially um, they may not be best for you. <laughs> You're just optimizing it based on, on what you know or what, what, what experiences you've had in the past. Um, and this is, I guess, for you, where it all sort of comes together, right? Right. Yes, you're leading us back to your first question. Yeah, that's right. And I know sometimes I think about bringing the body to the board of advisors. Like maybe you imagine King Arthur's Round Table, and you have different people, you know, different knights of the Round Table, and you've got, you know, your childhood conditioning, your cultural conditioning, your previous life experience. You've got all these different sort of factors that go into your board of advisors that inform your pleasure pain calculation. And, you know, the then you can bring the body to the table of advisors as well. You know, what's the body saying? What, what is the body? What data is the body giving us? Um, some people, I think, go a bit to the other way and they, they get in touch with their body maybe after having not been in touch with it for a long time and suddenly it becomes a dictatorship of the body. The body mm -hmm. takes control or, we, you know, we secede, we secede all authority to the body and you sometimes see this you know Michaela always jokes you know you can't get it you know you can't proceed without your green juice and so on but there's all sorts of times when you need to override the body and the ability to override the needs of the body um, for the greater good and we'll come back to what I mean by that um, is uh, necessary for any person sometimes when you get up in the morning you don't want to wake up and go to work and, you know, get up and, eat, you know, make your breakfast or whatever it is. You don't want to get out of bed. At least if you're like me, sometimes I want to stay in bed. And, and you know, that's what my body wants, you could say. But I override it, you know, something and get up. And there's all sorts of other, other situations like that where you have to override your body. But it's, it's one thing to override your body when you can't feel it. But there's another thing to sort of, in other sense, have it part of the conversation. Um, and you can choose whether or not to sort of, you know, to go that way. And when I say greater good, and you, you pointed to that, what, what's good for us, you know? And it's difficult to say because we have our pleasure pain calculation. Humans, um, I think, are motivated generally towards pleasure and away from pain. And so, but there's two different dimensions, at least, in that calculation. I mean, number one, we don't have all the data. We don't know the future. In a certain sense, we're always a little bit guessing as to the outcome of an action. Uh, we can predict it fairly well, but there's always uh, an element of unpredictability there. So you never really know if the thing that you're aiming for is going to be helped or hindered by the actions you're taking, even if you've got the best of intentions. We don't have all the data. But also there's a temporal dimension, which is really tricky, the dimension of time. 
what feels good now may not be good for you tomorrow or next week or next month. And sometimes something that doesn't feel good now is good for you later. In other words, it's, one has to really speculate to some degree as to the effect of your actions over time and kind of average the, uh, the, the, the sort of good for you-ness of something based on not enough data, not actually really knowing necessarily what's good for us, and also not knowing how things are going to play out over time. It, it's like delayed gratification is, is another way of describing that temporal axis. You, you know, we, there are people who just do what they feel is good for them right in that moment. And of course, they don't usually have very much going for them on a kind of ongoing basis. They're impulsive, let's say, or compulsive. But on the other hand, if you're too kicking the can down the road and delayed gratification, then in a sense, you, you, you haven't got a life worth living. You can't smell the roses. So there is, a, I think, a sweet spot that's always moving, which is another annoying thing about life. The sweet spot's <laughs> always moving between what's, what do you want now, what's good in the future. And there's this kind of tug of war, which is contextualized, like I said, by complete ignorance of, <laughs> well, not complete ignorance, but basically ignorance of what's going to actually happen. Yeah, <laughs> so it's no. really funny. So yeah, we just no, do the no. best, don't we? Yeah, and I'm fascinated by all that. And I know that in, in your own life, I mean, you've obviously spent times in with a lot of discipline in your life through your meditation practices. But I'm also, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the time that you've deliberately placed yourself in some pretty adverse conditions out in nature as well. So I'm, I'm certain there was plenty of times there when the body was, was screaming at you to do something different, but you've kind of maintained the course, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and, and you obviously see that, see the benefits in that. I mean, the time you spent out in nature, uh, was that through, through hobby or passion or was it through some, something else? Yeah, bo both hobby and passion. I mean, uh, I think you're referring to uh, some of the more extreme kind of outdoors things I've done, um, which are, which have typically been some sort of survival course. You know, I did uh, attended a survival that I've attended, not taught. I don't mm. teach survival skills, but mm. um yeah, and uh, for sure, I went out there in the Arctic for 10 days without a tent. And, uh, you know, we did things like that um, in the Arctic Circle. Not, you know, in the winter of the deep winter of northern England, uh, with not eating for seven days just to see what it's like. And, and at the same time, surviving with only your belt kit, what you've got on you, no backpacks, you know, no extra you know, gear and stuff. Um, all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it's challenging psychologically. It's also actually one of the aspects of it that I think is, is not often recognized. Other, you know, yes, it is difficult. We could talk about that if you like, but it's actually, it's extremely simple, simple. The beautiful thing about it is in a survival situation, which is different from a camping or bushcraft situation in a survival situation, you sort of handicap yourself a bit. You say to yourself, okay, well, a survival situation, something's gone wrong, hasn't it? You know, it's not, it's not, when you're training for a survival situation, you have to, in a way, handicap yourself a bit or put yourself in a kind of simulated stuff's gone wrong scenario. Otherwise, it's just camping. So, which I also like, hmm. um, you know, and one of the great things about survival is that, in fact, it's overwhelming for people. They, people don't know what to do next if they don't, if they've never thought about it. People think, well, do I need food? Do I need water? They never think about shelter generally. And then it rains and they die of hypothermia. Mm. Uh, you know, well, um, how long do I have to get found? You know, what's the typical sort of 72 hour window that one has to get found? How do I decide whether to stay put or move? You know, there are all these sorts of decisions that are actually pretty logical and straightforward. If you know, if you've been 
trained to think, you know, trained that way with proper case studies and experience. You just do the next thing you have to do in the order that you have to do it. And you might survive and you might die, not in a supervised situation, but, you know, in the simulation, you might survive or you might die. Um, but there's really very little conundrum uh, in, in that kind of a situation. And it's nice. So, okay, here we are. It's, it's, we need to find wood for the fire and then with this for the this. And it's the simplicity and the sort of full-bodied simplicity of one task after the next. And especially after you have no, you know, the, you start to have eaten for a few days and certain high brain functions start to shut down and you have to start to operate kind of based on skill, based on routine, based on experience in this kind of consistent work output, not spikes of work mm. output just sort of trucking along there's something i don't know pure about it Re like relaxing about it mentally existentially you're free of all responsibilities other than attempting to survive and i mean that's the plus side that uh, people don't i don't think realize unless they've done outdoorsy sorts of things mm. and you know taking it to a higher level i guess i like the work of you know john muir and, and toro and people and talking about the kind of spiritual nature of being out there um with the elements there's something more than just just the physical side of it do you feel you tap into that when you're out there amongst that stuff yeah i think that's that's the big draw isn't it for so many people um there wouldn't always not everyone you know, would describe it as spiritual, particularly. It depends on your concept, concept of the word. Right. But it's, there's something to it. I think simple. When I said the word pure, I'm, I think there's something there. I don't, you know, there's something there that points to that spiritual dimension. Yeah, mm. there is. And, uh, you know, people do those sorts of um, vision quests, don't they, where they go out and sit on the hill for four days without food or water, for instance. Yeah, I think, I think we're all drawn to it if we can kind of hear the call within us to... To do these things you know yeah but my point was it doesn't i don't think needs to be explicitly a spiritual or, or soul searching um venture for it to kind of suggest those qualities nature seems to suggest that it seems to invite that it seems to make the, the space for that natural part of human beings to come out mm. i found and also I've, i have found great camaraderie and uh yeah deep sort of camaraderie and bonds that are built in those sorts of situations with people yeah and i think you know that's probably a nice segue to talk about you know some of the work that we're doing at warrior within and you know getting the men out in nature together and kind of building a brotherhood that way seems to be um you know a fantastically uh, strong way of, of building those connections of building that brotherhood building that tribe if you will yeah i think the way i like to think about things like that, like what you're, you know, I, uh, the sorts of things you're doing, it's, it's smart because, you know, my, the ways in which I've been, if you want, deeply informed, you're doing men's work, for instance, the ways that I've been deeply informed by other men uh, in that kind of man-to-man -man kind of a way, it's very rarely an explicit explanation or pointing towards some sort of concept or uh, some sort of, you know, live up to this, or this is the way you do things. It's, it's rarely been that way. I found it's always, it's almost always been uh, by osmosis, you know, demonstrated in the doing of it. And I think when guys get together and do something together, there is a beautiful self-organization that tends to happen. A hierarchy manifests itself. 
not uh, one of the, you know and anyway and and lessons are learned and it's something good about that you know i think uh one of the things that one learns outdoors or that i learned out doing the outdoors sorts of things is that hierarchy is a function leadership is a function it's not a, a sort of fundamentally a status symbol um in those situations so someone in if you're all outdoors someone's got to take charge someone's got to take the lead and that's a role it's a function and it doesn't always have to be the oldest doesn't always have to be you know, this is the, the, the re, who's the leader can change and then actually there's a pleasure in being a part of a hierarchy that's a team it's not like you're a bottom dog and you feel like you want to climb up it's it's actually as honorable being in the middle or the bottom or something like this if you play your part correctly and a good hierarchy i think especially among men in that way can function like that it's it values every part of it because every part of it's essential the leader has no one to lead then, then it doesn't exist but similarly without a leader nothing gets done you know too much committee outside you know it doesn't work no i think that's that's beautifully put and <clears throat> i guess you know shifting gears to a more generic question now now we're sort of talking about the the men's stuff it's um yeah. if i can ask you a really broad question steve and that's kind of here we are in, in, in 2020, you know, what does being a man mean to you? What does it look like to you? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question, I think. And there's so many different levels you could, I, I could answer it on. Uh, but you know what, I'll say one thing that strikes me immediately. Um, and it's not, this isn't comprehensive or, or this is just an angle on it, right? But I'd say in a way, um, what does being a man in 2020 mean to me? My being a man is, is much the same in 2020 as it's been in all my life. From a certain point of view, I didn't do anything to be a man. I just came out that way. You know, I was born a man or a male, so I've always been one. And does my being a man imbue a certain kind of extra meaning or significance to me? in terms of identity, it, not so much. And does my man being, uh, does my being a man provide a deliberate kind of uh, impetus to me in terms of what I should be doing day to day? Not so much for me. Um, it affects my life in all kinds of ways. It opens certain doors, it closes others. In much the same way as other inherited factors, um, such as family of origin or my IQ or my height, my facial proportions, you know, as well as innumerable other factors. That's, that's the sort of, that's one way of analyzing that. And, I, and I, when you think about the 2020, um, now if we think about 2020, um, and if we consider the span of human history and people, and, and men, therefore, as a subset of people, have, have always faced a landscape of challenge and opportunity. And when I look back at previous generations, wars they've had to face, which are rather inconvenient. You know, wars are rather inconvenient for your sort of one's uh, self-actualization. Famine <laughs> is a rather, rather gets in the way of you know, living your dream. Disease poverty, <laughs> you know, I think, I think we live better than most Kings these days, uh, not everyone in the whole world, but relatively speaking, 
I think today is the greatest time to be alive as a person. It's not perfect, but it's the greatest time. And, and there's such an abundance of opportunity and freedom and education and information so readily available, relatively speaking. It's not perfect. Um, that's not to say that there aren't you know, special challenges in 2020, but I think almost all of them are variations on the perennial challenges that humans have always faced. Mm. You know, and I know, and you, you were saying to me earlier before we started talking that you do a lot of work with death and you do death workshops where people consider death and, and face death and talk about death. And you also mentioned that the fear of death is the one of the great root fears that, that drives and motivates a lot of behavior and under, underwrites a lot of fears. Um, and I think, and, and I think that's very, very true. And that's not a new problem. That's not a 2020 problem. Mm. Humans have been facing death and dying in their millions uh, since humans have, since humans have been alive, haven't they? Well, look, absolutely. In fact, you know, we've fought many religious wars over, over what I think happens after you die versus what he thinks happens after you die. And, and you know, I'm going to hold on to my view so tightly based on my fear of death, perhaps, that I'll kill you for it, which is, you know, there's a certain irony in that as well. But that's One way to find out, on. isn't it? What's that? One way to find out. One way to find out, absolutely. Right. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's beautifully put again in terms of in terms of manhood in 2020. I think that there are some particular problems which you know I feel are surrounding masculinity in 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 modern society. You know we're looking at sort of what's happening today around the Me Too campaign, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think there are a particular set of problems um, that men have to face, address, consider. Um, which maybe haven't been around in in this particular context before. I'm wondering, can you talk to that at all? Or? Yeah, I, I can certainly see what you're what you're getting at there. Uh, for example, Me Too movement, you mean? Yeah, among other, you know, other anything else perhaps around the whole concept of, of, of toxic masculinity, which you can define in, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I, I could speak to that. Uh, you know, For instance, when it comes to the Me Too movement, one uncomfortable truth or one uncomfortable, well, yeah, uh, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully so I can be accurate. Uh, one, is, one is brought face to face. Well, let's put it this way. There are lots of problems in our society and lots of difficulties that people face and things that people do, naughty things that people do to each other and cruel things, exploitation. And we don't really see it a great deal unless it affects us directly. And something that the Me Too movement does, I think, is it highlights and brings into the foreground something that has been going on and still goes on, uh, which is uh, to be you know, very specific about it, sexual harassment, for example, I think at its, at its most, at its most um, clearly defined. Now, of course, there's sexual assault and so on and so forth, but I think the Me Too, not that I'm an expert on Me Too, but it's not only about sexual assault and, you know, rapes and so on and so forth. It's also about sexual harassment. The implication that, well, if you, if we have a sexual, you know, 
encounter, then maybe uh, you'll progress or so on and so forth. So this, 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 anyway, this is part of life. So I think as a, for a lot of men, um, there are, well, I've spoken to a lot of men about this. A lot of men come to me and this is what they say. They say, wow, what if I'm doing something like that? unconsciously let's say what if some of the behaviors that i am a good i'm a good person but what if some of the things that i do that i didn't think of as bad are bad now uh, and that you know we need to only look back into history and see that there are lots of great people um who who by today's standards would be morally very backward great pioneers indeed sometimes pioneer of pioneers of moral and civil reformation uh, who actually, by today's standards, due to the you know due to the context in which they were so far in the past, if you were to judge them by today's standards, they would not they would be very unprogressive, <laughs> you know, mm. maybe even in prison, you know, something mm. like that. So, you know, that's the and so people say, oh gosh, the rules are changing, thing, things are changing, um, things are redefining, things are being exposed, uh, pendulums are swinging. Uh, what what am I doing? What can I do? How can I proceed? How what? Um, what is sexual harassment or sexual uh, oppression? Uh, what about, is it harmful to ask um, somebody out on a date who doesn't want to go on a date with you? Would the discomfort that you put them in, the discomfort that they feel due to your having asked them out, um, does that constitute a kind of subtle violence? That's the question that a lot of chaps who talk to me are genuinely asking it used to be i um, don't want to ask ladies out or i don't want to ask people out because I, if they say no i'll feel really embarrassed but now it's like i don't want to be an oppressive horrible person who's sexualizing a person and so you can see so that leaves you very interesting very interesting paralysis in a way and i've noticed a lot of men feel quite paralyzed by um the uh, possibility that they are being, um, you know, the, or the ambiguity around the rules as to of engagement. Let's just put it that way for a start. Yeah, I think that's um, very accurate in terms of what what we're hearing amongst amongst men as well. I mean, it's, I would say there's just a certain amount of confusion about how to show up as a man, and many of them feel that their the power has been taken away simply because they're confused about how to act in the world, how to be in the world. Um, you know, part of us is saying the masculine energy, we need to go and penetrate the world, but then, or maybe I should just sort of bury myself in the corner and kind of not, not poke my head out for fear of doing the wrong thing. Cause I'm not sure what the right thing is. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, and I think this, you know, penetrate the world thing is, I, I do think it's very foolish. Um, but an ill thought out, but I do, you know, it, it is galvanizing for some, some people, they think that, and mm. I think it's, it's a bit silly, but um, I just don't think it works even, by, even by its own measure, even by in its own ecosystem, that, that phrase is, is troublesome, but yeah, I mean, what do you do? What do, what do you do? And there's, you know, there's a lot of this sort of thing, you know, uh, men step back and so on. And then, so, you know, one of the things I like to do is, is I like to sort of take, you know, for instance, in mediation or, um, in any kind of conflict uh, resolution or conflict uh, things, it's really important to be able to take on the other perspectives that are in the mm. room. So of course, myself, I have my perspective in a conflict. Um, and if someone is criticizing um, a group to which I belong, I may feel attacked by that. And indeed I may be being attacked. Um, but one of the real things I like to try to do, and I haven't finished doing this, is 
is to try to take on the other perspectives and try to see things from their point of view and assume they're correct just for the sake of exploring the point of view. And I think um, that's what's handicapping chaps. It's not that everyone is unjustly calling me an oppressor. Um, it's not only that. I mean, some guys are saying that, you know, oh, I'm not an oppressor, don't call me an oppressor. I mean, that's just conflict. Uh, but it's the, the chaps who are thinking a bit more deeply about it and saying, I don't think I am, I'm not. But by this measure, I can't even draw breath without imposing myself on another and so on. And that, I think, is, is part of what's, what's paralyzing. And, and so I've seen many chaps to say, I'm not interested. I'm out. I don't want to play that game. Why should I? Uh, you know, why should I? I saw my friend down the road there who got divorced and now he's living in a tent at the ending in the park, still paying for the house. And they see that sort of thing, can't visit his children. Uh, you know, they see these sorts of things going on and they say, what's in it for me? Why should I? And sometimes they come to me and say, why should I? And I, and I, and I say, well, and I ask them to ex explain their reasons. And it's not that they're not seeing something, it's that they're just seeing too clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's really interesting. I mean, that, that's another, definitely another rabbit hole that we could dive down for sure. But is this, is this, is this conversation now some of the stuff that, that you, got, you and Michaela do together in, 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 in the workshops that you run? Um, to so, so some degree, I'm mainly just bouncing off what you're saying. Um, mm. I don't tend to talk, um, I wouldn't talk on these things unless it came up in Q&A or something like that. Mm. Um, we, we do, of course, um, you know, in our workshops, there's all sorts of interactions, person to person. There's also the sort of romantically charged or erotically charged kind of side of things as well that we do. Um, or if you want rather to say it polarized um, between um, uh, men and women or you know, same-sex same couples or whatever the case may be. We do explore the spark aspect of things. So in that sense, there, there is some overlap. Hmm. Um, and, and yes, some, some chaps are, are paralyzed and uh, they feel paralyzed in the entire endeavor. And yeah, it's very tricky. It's very tricky. You've got to crack some eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> you know, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet as the saying goes. And, if, and, and I think one, one of the interesting... Um, reactions to this sort of thing is it said well a man's role is to be in the family and a man's role is to be in a healthy sort of monogamous you know good pure above reproach kind of relationship and that's one of the um you know uh that's one of the uh fixes you know because now everyone's sort of scrambling around trying to define what's a good man what should a man be doing and you know and so on and that's that's a whole kind of worms and one of the ways is, well, you should, you know, be sort of traditional and do this sorts of things. Well, it doesn't really work so well, a lot of the guys are finding. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in order to even find and get the sort of experience necessary for that, you have to make an awful lot of mistakes. That's, that's, the, that's the price, if you want, of freedom. And as a man, I think we have a great deal of freedom, fundamentally. And the price of that, of course, is we have to risk making mistakes. So unless, you, you know, you happen to be sitting next to somebody at 17 years old, um, you know, and you, and you sort of see, see them, uh, you know, in a school disco or something like that, and you hold hands, and then, you know, at 18, you, know, you get married and everything's fine, unless, unless it goes like the Waltons or something like that. <laughs> it's going to be difficulty. You're going to date people you shouldn't. You're going to do things you shouldn't. You're going to make mistakes, ask people out who don't want to go out with you. Some people want to go out with you and you shouldn't go out with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 just, it's just, this life, isn't it? That's, that's, uh -huh. the, that's the way of these things, you know? No, a hundred percent. And, um, 
I think a lot of men, I find very afraid of making mistakes. So, which is, which is a, which isn't a great starting point because obviously it's required. Yeah. There's the, I, you know, when I think about those things, I sometimes think about risk assessment, mm. uh, you know, risk assessment has different dimensions to it. One of them is how likely is the thing to happen? And the other is how bad is it if it happens? And those are, of course, they intersect. If something is extremely high risk, extremely high risk, then even if there's a relatively small chance of it happening, then you're probably going to be quite averse to it. If something is pretty low risk and it's unlikely to happen, well, then, you know, that's just crossing the road, isn't it? Um, and it, uh, on the other hand, if something is, you know, low risk and, and really extremely likely to happen, like, I don't know, shooting a basketball and missing, you know, something like this, it's like, well, what does it matter? And then you're more likely to try and so on. So it's one of the things is to try to quantify and figure out what are the risk factors here? What exactly am I afraid might happen? Write that down, make it really clear. What do I think might happen? Okay, there's that. What is the chance? What are the likelihood of it happening? What do I think is the likelihood of happening? Uh, is there anything I can use to verify that? And then you make your decisions and that can come to some uncomfortable conclusions. And like I said, some of the men that I've heard talk about this have done that risk assessment and come to the conclusion that the, the thing to do is to turn away from um, romantic dating and so on. Um, the risk uh, reward ratio does not uh, work for them. Uh, they don't want to, to risk that. They don't want to go that route. So they, they look for other options. And I think that's always been a thing that men have done in the past. That's probably part of the reason why we have monks. <laughs> no, part no. of the reason why people join the military and things like that in throughout history. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a different way of life. And so oh, it's, a, it's a very fascinating time and everything seems to be up in the air. Look, I think that's, that's, that's a fascinating um, discussion. And I remember listening to you chatting with, with Trevor Bohm um, not that long ago and, and you were talking about um, a topic related to this. I think he asked you a question around, around relationships. It was like, well, do I, or, or don't I get into a relationship? And, um, you, um, um, started to talk about relationships in general. Um, and I thought that was, that was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could maybe share some of that thinking with the men today. Yeah. Let's see if I can remember what I said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I said something like relationship is, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember the entire thing. I said something like relationship is unavoidable. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Maybe there. No, I don't think I did that. It was off the top of my head. Mm. Um, yeah, relationships unavoidable. Mm. Uh, yes, Trevor was, you know, I think was, asking me if I'm for or against relationship. This was after a fairly long discussion we'd had about the pros and cons of- That's it, that's it. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did say that a relationship is uh, inevitable and unavoidable. We're always in relationship and say not dating doesn't save you from the burden of being or the um, messy, um, uh, the messiness of being in relationship. We're always in relationship. We're in relationship with everything around us and we're in relationship with everyone around us. The clothes I'm wearing came from somebody else. Someone made them. I don't know how to make this lovely woolen sweater. Someone does. So I'm in this sort of interesting, I'm supported if you want, in a way, by whoever made that sweater. 
and vice versa by, you know, by the flow of the money and so on. So we're all in certain sense, fundamentally in relationship and we're in relationship with ourselves and with the circumstances that we're in. And that, I think, uh, that desire to insulate oneself and protect oneself from the hurt and harm of other, of, of relationship, I totally understand it. Like Simon and Garfunkel's song, I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries, right? This is a Simon and Garfunkel song, which mm. I think, man, if you listen to that on a certain day, and you're feeling a certain mood, yeah, I mean, let's, let's build a moat. <laughs> you know, right. let's build a moat and isolate myself from the world. And you can do that, but you won't fundamentally be isolated from relationship. There is no sealing oneself off against interrelationship with, with, uh, with life, with change, uh, and so on. And that's, that's not to say that you have to date somebody. That's not what I'm saying at all. I was casting, as you said, the net much more broadly than that and, and saying, okay, Let's examine what, so let's say one decides to swear off dating, right? Which people have done. People are doing that. Some people have heard them say it. Um, great. Let's say you've made a risk reward strategy and that works for you. Um, and you've decided to do that. That's excellent. Um, what's left is, you know, don't uh, examine the degree to which there's an additional attempt to completely seal oneself off from all kind of, of relationship. It may be that for you at this time, that's a correct risk reward assessment to not date, let's say. Maybe you, you feel that's really important. That's great. Then you have to then open yourself up to the inevitability of other kinds of relationship, which are already, already, already always happening. And that can be the heartbreak. That can sometimes break the heart open because one is there, vulnerable, um, vulnerable to from on all sides because the problem with you know relationships it's it's multi-vector it can happen from all things something can come from behind above below you can you know you can sit with your back against the wall but you don't know where things are going to come from yeah, when when they when they come your way one phone call with a diagnosis or a test result from the doctor can throw you into your vulnerability two causes and conditions in a way that's um, quite remarkable. So I think that, and death, to come back to your topic, you know, you mentioned death before we started. That's why I keep thinking about it. Yeah. Well, that's where it all goes. And um, you can't negotiate with death. You can't ask death for five more minutes or 10 more seconds. When death comes, that is something like that. You know, sometimes in certain traditions, death and falling asleep are, they're analogous because in falling asleep you of course go from being conscious to unconscious at least most most people do that uh, but you also start to have a, a series of physiological changes and and cycle you know you 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 of course the senses seal off the body temperature drops the respiration changes the body goes into a sort of paralysis in a way and you you know you go into a kind of little death and then you wake up the next day you become reincarnated on a tuesday mm. um, in a way and the same but different, you know, the next day. But the, and I, I sometimes when I fall asleep, I think about that. And that is a, um, an exploration that's suggested in some traditions that as you fall asleep, feel, try to feel the, quite, quite aware of what are the changes going on? What's, what's happening as you fall asleep? Most of the time we fall asleep, we're awake and we, we relax and we just go unconscious. But if you stay a little bit aware, you can actually see some of these physiological changes as you slip into sleep happening. And sometimes I reflect that at the time of death, 
um, it, depending on how you die, there'll be a similar possibly procession. There'll be a time when as the, I'll feel the body temperature drop slightly and it won't ever get warm again. Or I'll start to lose control and strength in my limbs and it won't ever come back. Unlike sleep, where I go to sleep and I assume, because I have good evidence, that I'm going to wake up the next day. What would it be like if this was the last receding of my, you know, of my being, if you want, in this way? That's very profound for me. And to, to feel that and to feel the, my mortality, if you want, my, yeah, I find that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm reminded of the Tibetan Book of the Dead with kind of the, the removal of the elements, you know. Um, yeah. And as you say, permanently, as opposed to in sleep when, they, when, when you assume they'll be coming back. Um, it's a fascinating discussion. Just, just a minute. Wait, one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's that, yeah. you know. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had that when you fall asleep and you sort of go, oh, wait, one more, I forgot to brush my teeth. Or, oh, wait, yeah. I should do And then the thing. fight with the body to actually get upright again. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. That will, that will not um, be an option beyond a certain point. Sort of 100%. Point. And that I find deeply moving, actually. And considering my own death, of course, is one way of looking, but also thinking about other people. And I find looking at other people as they walk around, sitting in an airport or a cafe, and looking at people walking around, moving around, it can tenderize the heart to see their body uh, as it moves through time and space, particularly time, um, aging, you know, the sort of thing, changing, uh, vulnerable, held together for now, uh, the patterns woven together for now, but ultimately destined uh, now, reincarnation or such things aside, right? At least at the moment, you know, those patterns to dissolve back into the milieu from which they they were formed. And I'm not—you don't have to be spiritual to understand that. Just look at a, a, de a decomposing body. I mean it on that kind of a level. Mm. The, the biomatter of the body mm. degrades again. And where did the, where did that matter come from? It came from the same. Came from the earth. Came from you know this sort of system and it goes back into that there's something very moving to me about that and tenderizing to look at people and see that mm. um yeah and, and once again that's a little bit like we said before taking the other perspective what must mm. it be like to be walking towards starbucks with such um confidence in one's immortality unaware perhaps that change and contraction are around the corner. I think that's beautiful. I feel like I should be dialing you into our, our death workshop tonight. Um, and I, I talk a little bit about, you know, just looking at a rose, for example, just, you know, I think part of just bearing witness to the fact that that rose is dying is actually what brings beauty to it. Um, and in a sense, you know, we could bring it all the way back to relationship because maybe perhaps what keeps two humans in that, in that, in that deep love and that deep truth and that deep beauty is the fact that, you know, deep down, you've only got a certain number of days with this person. One or the other is, is, is most likely going to die first and the other will, will, you know, be scattering the ashes in the yard, as they say. Yeah. And then now, an, an image that I like is uh, of a candle, a little bit like the rose in that, in that sense. A candle, if it's left to its own devices when it's lit, it just keeps burning until it's got no more wax left. A candle doesn't, towards the end of its life, look down and say, uh-oh, not much wax left. Let's just burn a little less brightly, a little less intensely. 
it's this unstoppable, once started, process of combustion, of explosion, um, that will continue at breakneck speed, fully going until it no longer continues. And the other thing that's interesting about a candle is that it's continuous, but never the same. In other words, you look at a candle flame as it burns, it is, of course, that same candle flame. That's, it's not a different one, it's the same one on a certain level of analysis. But on another level of analysis, it's constantly exploding into a fresh candle flame each time. So actually, it's dying every single moment. It's dying and being born, dying and being born, dying and being born at this terrible breakneck speed. Um, unable or unaware or both of how much wax it fundamentally has. And we're like that too. Of course, we can eat healthy and exercise and so on and so forth. But the procession of time that's hurtling us towards that, that point is always, is, uh, is um, like I said, it can't be negotiated with. Um, of course, proximity to death polarizes sensitivity to life. In the same way, as you correctly said with the rose, that noticing the beauty of the, and the life of the rose, it immediately suggests its impermanence. But looking at death, being around death, contemplating death, and then walking out and taking a deep breath, very often it can. One can feel a quickening. One can feel the sense of one's aliveness. Fragile, uh, yes, vulnerable, certainly, um, but recklessly burning in much the same way a candle does. I, yeah, I, I couldn't care. I think, I think it's beautiful. And that's why you, you really neatly summed up exactly why I think you know, the death workshops and things that we do here are, are so important. Um, because you know, death is, is a very wise teacher and uh, it's often neglected. So, um, you know, in fact, there's some research to suggest that contemplating death actually um, um, orientates someone towards happier thoughts. And, and I understand why. It might seem counterintuitive, but from what you've just said, I think hopefully for people listening, that gives you some idea of how that's possible. In fact, it's almost inevitable. <laughs> It's such a fundamental part of being a human being, not only because we die when we die, but also that sense of ongoing death that we always experience. We never have quite this moment again. There's that, you know, and we all have that in common. It's something that we all share and it unites us, actually. I think that's one of the reasons why sitting at a cafe or something and looking at other people and thinking about death can, uh, you know, for, uh, for fun, <laughs> can actually be, uh, can actually point one to, it can open the heart. It can humanize people, and it can have the sense of t togetherness or connection, because we all share that process. And it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Life and death together, the tragedy of it all. It is wonderful. No, I, I I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little, just in the interest of. Um, of time, um, mm -hmm. but for the guys out there, do, is it okay if I ask you, do you have a, um, a, a routine or a discipline? I mean, how important is kind of ritual to you in, in your daily life? Do you get up and you do this, this and this and you get on with your day or is it a little more flexible than that? Yeah, I don't mind you asking. Um, yeah, I have uh, certain routines, you know, um, what can I say about routines? Uh, and I have certain disciplines, certainly. What, what are the, I, I'm very curious about that process of moving something from a discipline to a routine or a habit, migrating something to that. I know it's 
you know, how many books have been written about it, but there's something, uh, am you know, amazing about that process. Um, and there's something I think quite uh, empowering about it as well. We are, of course, a series of routines and subroutines. Um, or when I say, of course, I think one could say, one could, one could say that we're a series of routines and subroutines. A great deal of what we do is learned so thoroughly that it no longer feels like a, a performance of a maneuver, like talking is one obvious example, for instance. But there's many other things, walking, um, mobilizing ourselves through space, reaching out and grabbing a teacup. Babies can't do that. You know? so there's many things that, we, uh, that are natural to us that are learned. And sometimes we learn them consciously, sometimes we learn them unconsciously. Language patterns, patterns of the, of the mind, belief structures, uh, relational habits, all, a lot of these things are, in a certain sense, they get ingrained. And so, uh, and very often passively, we don't, we're not deliberately really choosing these things, they just end up being something we do enough that they become part of our operating system. And so I like this idea of, wow, what happens if you, you know, take something away, which creates an opening, or put something in, which, which presses out a new shape. I think it's very cool. So certain routines that I have, well, you know, and so, uh, well, let me say this. So on it, I think often of practice on two fronts. There's, and, and practice, I think, is this interesting intersection between ritual, routine, and discipline. There's the front, let's say meditation, which is my favorite practice, actually. It's my favorite one at the moment. And I've practiced many things in my life. And I'm a practicer. I love practicing. So it's just one of my, one of my strange quirks. But there's the practice of meditation itself. And of course, there's many different meditations, different styles and approaches, and they all kind of take different paths. And of course, you're different to anybody else. So your path's always going to be slightly unique. But in the same way that if you do heavy squats, you're generally going to put on strength and mass. And if you do long distance running, you're generally going to have another kind of physiological effect. Everyone's physiological effect will be slightly different, but certain forms of exercise emphasize certain or, or um, produce certain trends in physiological effect. Similar in meditation, there's many different kinds. Concentrate on the breath, just surrender and be with what is. Notice all the tiny little sensations of the body. Uh, you know, think, you know, feel, wish well to yourself, your loved ones, your enemies, you know, cats and dogs. I mean, there's all different sorts of meditations that take in different directions. But nonetheless, let's just say whatever you've chosen, you're, going, you're doing it. You'll follow a path, a road. Things, one thing will lead to another and another. At the very least, you'll get better at, at doing the technique. And so there are effects. That's if you want the meditation front. Then there's the other front, which is the practice of practice, which is the fact that you're doing it regularly, the fact that you're engaging with it. And there's, Bruce Lee said, all knowledge is ultimately self-knowledge. And there, I think there's something in the, there's something worthwhile pursuing, let's say, meditation, in addition to its specific benefits. There's, there's something uh, good about figuring out how to sit down for five minutes a day or 15 minutes a day or two hours a day or whatever it might be you do. There's something about the regularity of that. There's something about the creativity of that, creating something from nothing where previously, if you just left, if you'd done nothing at all, if you hadn't manifested that creativity, there would be, there would be nothing or negative. What I mean by that is if you go to the gym, you're creating a positive physical change in your body. If you don't go to the gym, it's not that you just stay the same. 
in a certain sense, you go back. So there's this sense in which you're never able to stand still. So when you positively engage with that fact, you can create amazing things. That's the practice of practice. Of course, when people practice anything, it doesn't matter if it's playing guitar, going to the gym, doing meditation, learning Rosetta Stone Spanish, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, that, that we all face, no matter what you're going to do, you're going to face the same stuff, which is yourself. You're going to face the way your mind works, the way the mind works, your own individual stuff, as well as the generic things. What's it like to build a habit? What's it like to come face to face with ignorance? If you try to learn something new and you don't know it, you're going to feel ignorant. You're going to feel confused because you are, because <laughs> you don't know it. That's a part of the process. And mm. we, get, we get out of the habit of that. And sometimes I think like a bodybuilder, um, a bodybuilder has to become a connoisseur of weakness. If a bodybuilder goes to the gym and wants to feel strong, which is the goal, you know, weight training kind of person, wants to feel strong, then they're, not, then they're not going to be able to produce the correct adaptation effect. A bodybuilder needs to know how to weaken himself through the stress of the training in order to produce the adaptation effect. In a certain strange way, he needs to learn to become weak in order to become strong. Uh, if a bodybuilder goes too far, of course, you're going to injure yourself. So you have to be, that's why you have to be a connoisseur. It's not enough that you're strained. It's not enough that you're taxed because too much of that, not very intelligent, you're not going to either be able to recover. So one has to be awake in the midst of the weakness. And some people say that in order to learn, you have to be outside of your comfort zone. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's true. Uh, but just because you're outside of your comfort zone doesn't mean you're learning. So if we say that in order to learn, you have to, you're going to necessarily be somewhat occasionally outside your comfort zone. Yeah. But just because you're outside of your comfort zone doesn't mean you're learning. You could be overwhelmed. Cults use this tactic. You know, they'll say that you'll be like confused, overwhelmed, uncomfortable. And they'll say, yes, that means you're learning. Isn't it true that when you learn, you're uncomfortable sometimes? Yeah, it mm -hmm. is true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you're uncomfortable. That must mean you're learning. It doesn't mm -hmm. follow logically but it's, it's what people say. So, and then you go, yeah, yeah, of course. Where sometimes you think, no, I don't want this. And, and it's a boundary. And then person will say, well, isn't it true that the ego always tries to defend itself? This is a defense mechanism of the ego. Or isn't it true that people are afraid of intimacy and so on? And say, yeah, well, that is sometimes true. Well, look, see, you're, that's what that is. And, and we'll, we pathologize boundaries. Anyway, this is a bit of a tangent. No, I, I, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So thank you for taking it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the point is anyway, that there's something beautiful about whatever the discipline um, that is uh, common to most disciplines, uh, which I think in, in many ways is the best part of it. So yes, I do meditate uh, each day and it's a passion of mine. Um, I've had other disciplines in the past. I, that, that's my primary one at the moment, I would say. Um, and, uh, but it's a continuation, like a relay race, handing the baton on from all the other disciplines I've had. Um, and, and so I don't, sometimes people worry, what should I do? What's the right meditation to do? Uh, am I doing it right? How's it going? Should I be doing this other thing? And these are all valid concerns. But what, something that's always reassured me is that if you're doing something, then you're always winning on the front of the practice of practice. You can't always progress in the practice of meditation. You can't always progress uh, meaningfully 
in the direction of the particular discipline you're, you're engaged in for various reasons. But you can always progress. You can always do something positive in that practice of practice, that creating something from nothing kind of space. I, I love that. I, I think that's, again, I'm going to sit with that for a while. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, I guess it, it's, I feel like we need to ask you a little bit about um, how you got to, to where you are right now, Steve. And this is maybe something we should have said at the beginning or talked about in the beginning, but we can do it at the end. I think that's fine. Um, but I guess people have now heard a little bit from you and, and quite clearly um, there's a lot of wisdom coming through and um, there's just so much experience on so many different fronts. And my, my simple question is, how did, you, how, how did you get here? Like, where are you from? Um, you know, where on earth, if you indeed that's where you're from? Um, <laughs> you know, what took you on this tangent? Like, what, why are you not a, a carpenter or a lawyer or a banker? I mean, was there a moment when things changed or things opened up for you or was it kind of more of a, just a progression from early age? Yeah, um, I've been pondering that since you sent, sent that to me yesterday, actually. That, how to answer that. And, um, uh, you know, and of course, the easy answer is to say that, uh, you know, lots of things go into where you are and who knows where it comes from. But I was then trying to think, well, is there something I can actually say that gives, you know, one incident that doesn't encapsulate everything, but gives you, and I think there is actually. Um, but the brief, the brief, uh, so anyway, would you rather me uh, more biographical or sh should I rather give an, in an incident that was quite dramatic or, or quite, uh, should we say like changed course in a way that then unfolded and then people can kind of piece that together. Uh, it, you want to summarize to my like, I'll leave it open and, and take it where you wish. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I guess people want to know my, my biography. They can just read the show notes, right? You're probably pretty For sure. Sure. But I mean, I come from a little island called Shetland, off the north coast of Scotland, and blah, 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 and all the other things. So um, now I'm in California. <laughs> yeah, actually, there is something that's, that I can say, and I don't talk about it a great deal. Um, but I think it'll at least be interesting. I was um, coming home... Um, I used to be involved in the music industry for about 10 years. In fact, I was what's called a session guitarist. And I was depping or sitting in on a show musical called Evita. I was in London. And of course, we have the West End there. So Evita is a musical. Um, and I was uh, doing a week on that. And I'd finished that. And I was coming back on the train and went to sleep and woke up the next day. And I had a sort of, as most musicians say, it was uh, do Monday. It's like kind of a slow day for musicians generally. And I got up and everything was nice and so on. And then, well, gosh, I went to the toilet and massive amounts of black tar emerged from my, from the place you'd expect it would emerge from. And I thought, my goodness, what's that? Turned out, to cut a very long story short, I'd had um, in a tremendous amount of internal bleeding uh, in the intestines that I come from a congenital birth defect, actually, uh, to put it that way, which I was unaware I had, you know, um, turns out I'm not perfect after all. My mother was wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, the, the, so that's the long story short. Of course, I went to the GP and said, well, what about this? And she said, oh, have you eaten a lot of licorice? 
you know, sometimes that can make things black. And I thought, well, no, and this is really a lot. To cut a long story short, about over 10 days, uh, I, I had a very little amount of blood in my body. Now, when you lose a lot of blood, you also lose red blood cells. And red blood cells transport the oxygen from the lungs to the tissues. And uh, mo mo you're supposed to have, I think, as a male, 14 to 16, something like that, red blood cell count, hemoglobin count. Uh, people start dying around seven, I've been told. When eventually, about 10 days later, I, I went to the hospital, it was at four. Wow. And so I was laying in bed thinking to myself, I didn't want to go to the hospital. So I was thinking to myself, well, if I can get to the bathroom and back again, I need to go to the bathroom. If I can go to the bathroom without having to sit down or anything like that, then I'll wait until the morning because it wasn't getting any better. And then I thought, yeah, that's what I'll do. And if I can't, I'll just go to hospital, I guess. And then so I lifted my head up to go to the bathroom and my head fell back. And I realized, oh, I can't even get up, actually. That's not good. So ambulance comes and they take me out. And in the ambulance, they were saying to me, you know, they were reassuring me. It was very odd. They said, you know, uh, don't worry. This is the sort of reason people have ambulances. You know, you were right to call the ambulance. They were sort of telling me that. It's very interesting. And I went with my brother who I was living with at the time in London. We get there, we're driven in and yeah, all, you know, chaos breaks loose and nurses are coming and they're sticking, you know, emergency transfusion. Anyway, my brother goes uh, to step out of the little bay I was in in order to call my parents to inform them of the situation. And the doctor uh, sort of was coming in and the doctor said to him, uh, don't go, he's probably not going to make it. And so uh, I heard that and I heard that and it was like, you know those cathode ray TV tubes, uh, TVs that you pull the cord this is, I think we're, I'm showing my age here. You, you pull the cord and then when it switches off, it goes, and yeah, yeah. everything recedes to a white dot. Yeah. It was like that. It's like everything went to a, and so shut off. And then I saw my whole life going before my eyes, but in images. So it was like when someone ruffles a, de a deck of cards and I was seeing this like that going really, really fast, really, really fast. And And then at the end of that, this is the sort of strange things that happens to people when they're right on the brink of death, right? And uh, people who've looked into these near-death experiences and so on will know all kind of weird stuff happens. And so that went through. And then I had this um, picture like a, one of those Japanese calligraphy paintings. And, and I had in my mind this idea that part of the point of those Zen sort of Zen master doing a calligraphy is that it's that spontaneous action. You know, it's the just doing this of it. So then there's hand went and drew a line like across a Japan, Japanese paper with a brush stroke. And it, and it had that feeling of spontaneous just doing this. And the feeling was of completion and perfection that my whole life had, for whatever reason, come up to that point. And it was perfect. Not that I'd done everything right by any stretch. I'd made a lot of mistakes. But the fact that it all kind of had to go that way up to that point, there was a sense of completion or finality. And it was sort of felt like the end in that way. And then kind of comes back again, like the TV's powering back and I'm back. And I looked around and I looked at the curtains and I looked at the ground and the feeling, the separation of the inside and the outside 
of subject object, you could say, was uh, this feeling of it was not there. And it was in a way like the curtains were me in a way, or no more me or less me, no less me than the things I would normally think of as me. And then in a certain sense, I, I was I looked down, if you will, and I experienced my body. And my, I experienced my body as a constellation of patterns, of forward-moving patterns that had a certain momentum to them, a certain uh, amount of life in them, and that my body was going to continue until it died, and that there was, much like the candle analogy, my body was going to continue living until and trying to live, as it was its nature, until it ran out of road, until the threads unraveled, and that was the end of that. And then I experienced my mind, and my mind was a similarly, which is sort of like your personality, was similarly this constellation of patterns, of forward-moving threads that also had have, would keep going until it couldn't go anymore. There'd be no sense in which the mind could possibly give up living before it was dead. It would continue with no uh, shields between the end uh, other than it's just disintegration. So... And I realized my mind is going to attempt to live as well. So in other words, I experienced what's called the will to live. My body and my mind's will to live, which was in its nature. Uh, but I wasn't those things. And the stakes were not, had no sort of, so I was going to keep trying to live unabashedly. But if I didn't manage to do so, there's nothing wrong about that. It didn't feel wrong to die. Um, my, so it wasn't an acceptance of death that one can sometimes do where one surrenders to the possibility of death in order to negotiate with death so that you feel less bad about death. It wasn't like that. No, no, 100% trying to live, but at the same time, quite um, okay with either option, living or dying. So that was that. And that was, of course, quite transformative. <laughs> I imagine. I yeah, imagine. And, then, and I guess it begs more, the question you know, yeah. about holding the view. How long could you hold, hold that, that view for? Or has it yeah. ever lasted, you know, been with you ever since? Exactly. Uh, it, has been, yes, it has been there. It's sort of burned in, in a way. And the interesting thing about it is it doesn't preclude any other way of being from happening. So like I said, it wasn't a dissociation, if you want, from um, anything in particular. It was a broadening or a recontextualization, I would say, of myself. So rather than me being the center of the universe, my body-mind, it was like the, my body-mind is a center among centers. So yes, it's still, I still feel like I'm here and I'm important and I'm you know, in there somewhere looking out at you and all this, that, and I still feel that. But on the other hand, um, that perspective is not privileged somehow as being the life or death universe um, lives or dies by what happens to that particular point of view or that particular reference point. So in that sense, um, that recontextualization of myself, looking at myself, if you want, basically in a bigger picture, um, um, I think to answer your question, one of the effects of that, and there are many, one of the effects of that, I think, is it's opened me up to more possibilities in terms of more possibilities, more perspectives, different ways of thinking. 
different ways of, of looking at things. When one isn't so constantly tempting to fiercely defend one's, one's own position, the integrity of one's position, if you experience your position as sort of constantly changing in, in a way, um, then I think there's a, there's a greater degree of freedom there and creativity that can come. Um, and also a sense that, uh, you know, I would say, one example, which is very silly, is Brexit. So we've had Brexit in the UK, right? Right. And as somebody, uh, for those of you who don't know, UK has left European Union, which means in the past, we could, anyone in Europe can go and live and work anywhere in Europe. And now when you leave Brexit, you can't do that anymore. You have to get visas. So if you're maybe going on tour, you have to get a visa to every single country you go to, right? Real pain. And if for some reason you wanted to live in Germany or France, you can't, and you know, no, everyone's really sad about it. And I'm, you know, it's, it's annoying to me. It's, it's personally uh, difficult and uh, inconvenient because of the nature of my job and the nature of the sort of person I am. But, and that, that is the case, but I find myself quite philosophical about it. I can understand the reason why people wanted that to happen. And I also don't have this sense that somehow everything should be going my way. The fact that it inconveniences me doesn't seem unjust. It's still inconvenient, but it doesn't see, feel like it's unjust. How could this happen? Why is this happening? You know, the rules are such that bad things aren't supposed to happen or inconvenience isn't supposed to come my way. There's this additional sense of, of um, injustice, I think, that's not there. And that... Um, or is reduced anyway, let's put it that way. Let's not speak too broadly. It's reduced, mm -hmm. and I think that, that that's quite good. So uh, the, I was thinking of what I might say in answer to that question, and I wanted to give you something a little bit more personal, actually, and less philosophical, mm. and less analytical. Mm. Um, so that's that's what I thought I'd offer up. Well, it, it's it's beautiful, and and very much talks to the types of discussions we have within the warrior within group two. Um, and for me, it kind of, it kind of begs the question, um, uh, do you think a person needs to have that kind of experience in order to kind of, you know, broadly speaking, wake up, which is a terrible, terrible phrase, but, but, but you, you know what I'm driving at. Um, or do you think you can come to it without having one of those sort of pivotal? Because I mean, for me, like I could insert my own experience and a similar kind of a journey. But I'm wondering really? if that's if if it, if it needs to be that way. <laughs> really, what happened to you in a sentence? Oh well, you know, um, I, I um, it's a couple of things. But I, I lost my mother and my sister to 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 they, they took their own lives, um, and shortly after that, I, I was diagnosed with a with a blood cancer. And I think across that period of time, um, I had I had several experiences, maybe not quite so profound as what you did, but it had the same impact. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I ended up in a, in a psych ward for a little while after my diagnosis because those things just happened a bit too quickly. Um, and, and I guess I went into a sense of overwhelm. But you know, from that place, within that place, and then coming out of that place, um, I began to, um, to experience the type of thoughts that you had around, 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 around my existence. And, and I've been able to hold that for you since. That's fascinating. Yeah, mm. I'd, I'd love to quiz... See, I actually prefer being the person asking the questions than the person answering the questions. So I'd like to quiz you about that, but I know it's not the format. So, um, so your question was to, to 
do all people need to go through that? Um, or something. I mean, my view is, you know, maybe you just need to stub your toe and you have that experience. But um, is, is, there, is there a kind of a pivotal moment or a pivotal experience that is required to kind of to kind of bump you into into this this way of thinking or this way of being mm -hmm. um well it's the sudden or gradual uh conundrum uh does one need to have a sudden change in perspective or mm. is a gradual change in perspective as um as impactful uh, this is a debate you know in in the, i'm drawing that from the zen tradition for instance which has this debate of course in zen I don't know how interesting this will be to your listeners, but anyway, in, I think we've gone well off any reservation. <laughs> so <laughs> may as well. Continue. It's all great. Uh, can, it's all you, great. can you hear those dogs, by the way? Um, now you've pointed it out, not before. So it's cool. Okay, I'll continue. Um, um, okay, someone's shushing them. That's good. That's really rather bad. <laughs> so, uh, your dogs, have, by the way? Yeah, Michaela's dogs. She has these little rescue dogs, oh, and okay. they're the most terrific little chaps but damn they're loud when they get going and one of them howls and they all howl and you know for reasons that only dogs understand so anyway uh yeah there's that debate and you know one of the uh, you could say one of the ways to characterize um you talked about waking up i think is to see things more clearly to see through it's often characterized that as seeing through uh delusion or seeing through, and sometimes like a mirage. The thing with a mirage is not that it's not real. A mirage is real. It's just not an oasis. So if you're in the desert and you're, you, you see an oasis in the distance and you stumble towards it and you arrive and it's not an oasis, it's just sand, you might say it was, that was not real. It's not that it wasn't real. It's just not what you thought it was. The mirage was real. It was a real mirage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just wasn't an ocean. And a lot of life is like that. We take certain things, we, we, we treat certain things one way when actually they're, they are that way in a way, but in other ways they're not. Um, but anyway, uh, so does one need to have some aha or eureka moment? Uh, I think not, actually. Um, it is something that can happen to people. People can have aha moments. Sometimes people have an aha moment that lasts a brief period of time and they can taste the echo of it but it's not, hasn't got that sense of, um, uh, but if they're honest, it doesn't have that, that, that immediacy or that it's not really there. Mm. Other people can have an aha moment and become so acclimatized to it that, that they feel like it's gone, but it's not that it's gone. It's just that they've become acclimatized to it. That can happen. Other people can have an aha moment and they crystallize around that aha moment. And they say, I want to always have this sense of shock, wonder, and surprise at this insight. In other words, um, one Zen teacher said that uh, to, today's enlightenment is tomorrow's mistake. In other, <laughs> oh, in other like words, yeah, and in Zen they had this idea of the makyo, of the devil cave. A devil cave is basically an insight that you get that you hold on to and you think some, you identify with and you think, well, now I've, you know, I've woken up or I've had a waking up experience. Um, and you crystallize on that. And then all you've done is you've, cha you've changed your previous fixed position and identity that you had before with a new one. Mm -hmm. This one is identity beyond identity or it's having woken up or something like this. But actually, you've just, you're in a different prison cell, but this time the bars, maybe there's some incense, you know, <laughs> yes. you know some prayer flags and stuff. It's the same 
basic idea though as before. So that can happen. And I think actually that, um, uh, so, uh, that it doesn't, that it, it's not required actually. And the point of a, of a, of an aha experience, it can of course be used as an identity marker, which is, I think something of a mistake. Um, but one of the points of it is it's, Relevance is in how one it plays out in the rest of one's mundane life. That's the venue of life. The venue of life isn't in the aha moments exclusively. The, it's the mundane, everyday, walking around, interacting, getting up in the morning, having a coffee, going to the toilet, taking a shower, all these sorts of things. In a sense, there's nothing special about those things. But in, in another sense, they're, they're very profound. And we've talked a lot about, about how profound life is when you consider death. Every moment, if you knew you were going to die in 24 hours, you know, you look out the window and suddenly the sparrows, you know, are so wonderful and the leaves are so green. And you know, mm. Well, the truth, is, the truth is, Steve, that you very well might. So you should take that view. Uh, yes, that's true. How to integrate the possibility of your of your dying at any moment, whilst the probability is constantly shifting. You know, right. that's the thing. Because every other day I've woken up, I've been alive. Mm. So it's difficult to quantify. So I have a reason, good reason to assume that all the rest of my days I'll wake up. That's why death comes as such a shock to people is because we haven't done it before. Um, <laughs> we can remember, and I, once again, I'm putting entirely reincarnation. So I don't think that's even necessary to think about that. I don't know yeah. what I think about that actually myself, but mm -hmm. I know from my own, you know, mundane experience that every time I've woken up, I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And other than that incident where I almost died um, uh, and faced death, you know, and had that very close brush with it, uh, which was actually very liberating in a way, um, so far, so good. <laughs> mm. No, I agree. I guess the reason why I, I came to asking you that around whether you think you need a, a, an experience yeah. or, or, or a moment is that for most of the guys that turn up in the Warrior Within group, there's been a trigger moment for them. You know, life's sort of going along swimmingly and, and, and you know, they've lost their job, they've, 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 they've lost money, their wife's left them, they've had a health issue, they've lost a friend or there's something... Um, there's a triggering event, not in all cases, but in, but in many, um, which has caused them to kind of, you know, turn the dial inwards and kind of focus on what's going on in, internally um, rather than just looking at the external all the time. And, and lo and behold, you know, they show up in the group. Yes. I, I think that's perhaps a slightly different, I didn't quite understand then that that was the sorts of things you were pointing to in that case. Um, I, I still don't think it's necessary, but when, when things don't perform as expected is generally that, I think that's the category. It's like system error does not compute. Mm. Things are not, my, my, my reality or my worldview is not performing as, as expected. Something which does not fit my model um, has happened. And some people bury that and proceed with a sort of cognitive distance. Other people, they, they, they're forced in a way to update their model and they start to then have to look beyond the scope of the sphere of influence and information that they're currently existing in generally because that's what's informed their existing model and they start seeking. Uh, and people turn to psychology and self-help, they turn to men's groups such as that you run, people turn to religion, of course, um, you know, for any, any, any explanation 
any merchant of meaning and certainty, um, you know, uh, becomes, you know, in, of interest. And I think, you know, one of the best things someone can do um, in our sorts of position where, you know, we, we do encounter people like that who are, who are looking to update their model in the face of, of, of uh, data that doesn't fit their model is to encourage the process of inquiry and investigation mm. because it's very easy to placate somebody's question. You could say, well, this has happened. Let me give you the answer or let me give you it, but you're not giving them the answer. You're, you're giving them an answer. You're giving them a sense of certainty. You're smothering the inquiry as uncomfortable as it may be. That inquiry is the spark of awakeness. I think mm. that's the part of you that's continues to um, look really. And just as a, we were saying before that a bodybuilder needs to become, you know, a connoisseur of weakness in order to be strong. In order to be wise, I think you need to be comfortable or not comfortable. That's wrong. In order to be wise, you need to become acquainted with confusion and mm. ignorance. So be able to simmer like a sausage in a pan and to live in the contradiction of the known and the unknown. Mm. That some things I know, some things I don't. I don't know how much of what I know is not going to be the same. Tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's really quite a mess, but it's extremely creative. It's the plus and minus coming together, causing, um, causing what, you know, what you're talking about, their awakeness in some sort of a sense. Some people, it seems, they're just walking along one day and it just suddenly occurs to them some existential question. And then they're thrown into this sort of a, this seeking that you've described there. So I don't think necessarily something terrible needs to happen, like it happened to you, mm. something very horrible. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, it, I see, now I see what you're pointing at. Yes, I do think that's a trend, actually. And do you see that potentially in the the one-on-one, the, the, -on -one, the private clients that you have, that there's been a trigger event as such? Or, or is yeah. there a whole range of things that has to happen? Yeah, sometimes. Divorce is a good one. Yeah. I'd say divorce is one of the most common ones. In America, it's a uh, last statistic I looked at. Um, things we're talking about men in a heterosexual context. Um, divorce initiated 80% of the time by women mm. in America which means that for whatever reason, good or bad, I'm not judging any of the reasons for it. I'm just saying that a great deal of men don't see it coming, or at least it's not what they wanted. They didn't initiate it, right? It comes at them, you know, rather than them filing for it. Um, and it can really shake to the core. And a lot of men, I think there's partly biological and evolutionary reasons for that, partly culturally. We're highly attuned to the well-being of our mate mm. that's why if your partner is in a bad mood it kind of actually is painful it's difficult to be around some uh, partner who's in a bad mood because i think there's i have speculation as to why this is which i think we have no time to go into now but i think it's certainly observable um to many people that when your partner is in a bad mood justified or unjustified it's a little bit like it can feel a little bit like being held prisoner you can't rest you can't relax it's very difficult to say, well, well, that's your problem. That's your bad mood. I'm fine on the sofa. Really difficult to do that. You have to really disconnect and really pull back in order to do that. And that's not something I'm, I've seen many men be capable of doing without really damaging themselves. Um, you know. And so divorce is a big one uh, that can happen or failed relationships. And the way that culturally we're going in terms of, of relationships, we don't need each other as much. Men don't need uh, w women don't need men for a lot of the things they used to. 
my mother, when she married my father, couldn't get a mortgage because she was a woman. Not, it wasn't, um, you know, sort of one-off case. Women weren't allowed to get mortgage, mortgages at that time in the UK. Um, it was around that time when she graduated, people were saying, well, you're a smart girl, maybe you should be a doctor um, rather than a nurse. Because then just ladies were nurses, men were doctors, that's just how it was. It was just the culture at that time. Um, so in that sense, for if you wanted a mortgage, you needed a guy, <laughs> you know, one of the ways. And there are many other little things like that, that men and women in a certain sense um, needed each other or it was assumed and so on. Now, with the great deal more freedom we have, it's not, it's not, um, there are not as many cultural and societal forces in the developed world pressing us or pushing us together to be together. So therefore, people get together with the momentum of the old patterns and when they're in relationship, they don't know why or how or why isn't it working or what's the point of this anyway. You're looking at somebody thinking, you're no longer novel. Yeah. What, what good are you if you're no longer novel? Mm. I don't feel, you know, what's the point? And that's a good question. That's actually not a, a bad question or an insensitive question if you take it seriously. It's a really good question. What is there beyond the novelty and the feel-good hormones? What's the point of relationship? That's an extremely deep and important question because a lot of people's assumptions about relationships, the whys and wherefores, are out of date. So that, that is a crisis that yeah. I think can also jump the rails of one's cultural programming and find oneself asking the question, I need to update my model. There's a whole nother, there's a whole nother discussion we could have around that for sure. I mean, I was, I was particularly interested when you said that men often don't see it coming. Um, and that's something that, you know, in my own life, I can certainly attest to, but also a lot of the guys that, that we, we see in the circle. And um, it's particularly interesting. It, it's, it's, you know, the guy will often say, you know, I didn't see it coming and now she's left me. And you speak to the, 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 the woman in, in, in a heterosexual relationship and she'll say, I've been telling him for ages. <laughs> yeah, miscommunication. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's a big part of it. No intimacy in the sense that very often we don't relate to the other. We relate to the idea of the other one. Mm. We relate to the potential of the other one. You know, when we're attracted to somebody, of course, we don't initially, we're not attracted to them. We're attracted to our idea of them. Mm. We're attracted to the possibilities that they represent mm. or what's implied by what we observe. Mm. And most of that's going on. I mean, of course, they're contributing to a certain degree. Um, but most of that is 80% of, of what I just described is in the mind of the, of the observer mm. and not intrinsic to the to the one that one is attracted to. So, of course, you know, divesting oneself, disillusioning oneself in relationship to your partner is an extremely important process. I think it's also a very exciting process because it's moving beyond what you imagine and what you project into what's actually there. And what one finds when one deeply investigates a rose, as you said, a candle, as I said, we chose very simple things, or indeed an intimate partner, is far more unpredictable, exciting, and uh, diverse than anything I think that, than your projections were. And of course, when one begins that process of really getting to know a person, you know, that you know, of course, that's a good, sometimes you, you find out you shouldn't be with them and they're not a very nice person. All right, that's fine. But, you know, if you find somebody with whom you, you're going to go for a while with in that way, it can be a very beautiful thing. 
So I think that's often the case. Two people engaged in relationship in parallel, side by side, with themselves, <laughs> with their own projections, with the face of the, this person on it. <laughs> you know, and then, bang, things aren't what I thought they were, the guy says. I've been dumped. I've been divorced. I never saw it coming. This is not my model. I've, I've jumped the rails now, and I'm laying on the side of the railway track, dusty, mm. bruised, battered, you know, and awake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's a beautiful place to end it there, Steve. I think that's, um, that's perfect. So yeah. I just want to say thank you um, for spending you this time with us. Um, you know, we'll see what people say, but I would, I'm sure we'd love to have you on again at some point in the future if that's something you're open to. Um, Certainly. Thank, uh, thank and, you for inviting me. Yeah, and, and I know you've got, so you're in Australia a couple of times um, through the year. I think maybe the easiest thing to do um, rather than to, you know, continue spending time on this call is to, I'll pop something in, the, in a post just um, outlining what that is. Um, yeah. And, and we can go from there. But you know, that's the great news for everyone listening that we've got the opportunity to actually spend some time with Steve and, and Michaela in their workshops in Australia, in fact, in Melbourne later in the year. Yeah, it's been really uh, enjoyable thinking these things through with you, Asher. Your questions are very cool. Um, like I said, I wish we could, you know, interview each other in a way. I have, you know, because the little things you've, you've said there make me very curious about your point of view. Uh, but yeah, it's so cool to ponder these mysterious questions together. So thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks again, Steve. I appreciate it. You're welcome.